According to ProjectHome.org, in 2017 there were over a half million homeless people in the United States, and more than 30% of them were not in shelters. Over 40,000 of the United States homeless people are veterans. 40,000 people who served this country currently have nowhere to live. And that doesn't begin to scratch the surface of the other half million men, women, and children who go without food or shelter every day. These numbers may be even higher than reported because, as Project Home points out, there are so many homeless people living in hiding, taking refuge in abandoned cars or houses. Over 15,000 Philadelphians every year seek support from shelters. But the number of people who need shelters could actually be higher because folks are turned away due to shelters operating at full capacity. There are so many reasons why someone could experience homelessness. Cost of living is just one of many, not only in Philadelphia, but around the country. Minimum wage just doesn't cut it. Currently, the Pennsylvania state minimum wage is $7.25 per hour. If you're a high school kid looking for your first job, living at home with your parents who support you, well, that wage isn't horrible. But when you're a single mother or a two-parent household with both parents working at that rate, you would need to work more than 100 hours a week to afford just a small one-bedroom apartment in Philadelphia. And then there's the city's heroin epidemic. Project Home reported in recent years, Philadelphia has seen an increase of over 70% in opioid-related deaths due to drug overdose. Heroin is easy to get in the city of brotherly love. You may have seen news programs talking about the heroin tent city in Kensington, the significant increase of people addicted to heroin living on the streets in Philadelphia, and the arguments about methadone clinics, needle exchanges, and other proactive programs designed to help people addicted to heroin. There are so many opinions on whether these programs will make a difference in the lives of people living on the street who struggle with addiction. Not everyone who is homeless uses drugs, and not every drug user is homeless. But for some, these conditions go hand in hand. As you drive around Philadelphia, you see so much of our homeless population. There are certain highway exits where you'll recognize the same faces with the same signs. Exits that have traffic lights at the bottom of the ramp where someone might have more luck getting a driver to roll down their window and share a little extra change. There are also drivers who won't look at people asking for money. They avert their eyes. They pretend they don't see the man or woman standing on the corner with desperation all over their face. Any one of us could experience a significant setback and those roles us sitting in our cars, them standing on the corner hoping someone could spare a few quarters, those roles could change in an instant. In November 2017, I saw a story about a man named John Bobbitt. John is homeless. One night in October, a young woman from New Jersey drove along I-95, a major highway on the East Coast. Her story went something like this. She was on her way home from visiting a friend in Philadelphia, and her car ran out of gas. She coasted off the highway in an area called Port Richmond, down the exit ramp until her car finally died. It was late at night, she was alone, no idea where the nearest gas station was. She called her boyfriend, who, like all good boyfriends would do, told her he would come and get her, but it might take a little while. Soon after her car stalled, a stranger approached her. His name was John Bobbitt. He had a slender, angular face, a long, unruly beard and mustache. John was homeless, but he saw a young woman alone and stranded and knew he could help. This young woman was Katie McClure, and her good fortune was breaking down off the exit ramp where John asked people for money. 
He had $20, and he told Katie to get back in her car. He offered to go to a nearby gas station and bring back gas. According to Katie, John told her to trust him. He promised he'd be back soon. And he was. This stranger, who had nothing other than $20 he'd made from days' worth of panhandling, spent his money on a fellow stranger. Katie McClure had no cash to repay him, but she promised she would also return, and she did. Katie and her boyfriend, Mark D'Amico, returned within a day or two with cash and some items they thought John could use. When I read that story, I sobbed. To me, it seemed like an act of such selflessness by someone who was probably looked down upon so often. The story of John, Katie, and Mark got even bigger, even better. It was the feel-good story of 2018. Mark and Katie wanted to do more for John Bobbitt than merely repay his kindness. They wanted to change his life, help him get off drugs and off the streets of Philadelphia. Katie McClure and Mark D'Amico created a GoFundMe campaign. They shared their story of how they met John Bobbitt, what he did to help Katie, and their desire to raise money for him. Initially, the GoFundMe hoped to raise $10,000. By Friday, November 17, 2017, the campaign raised over $300,000 from more than 11,000 donors. Eventually, the GoFundMe campaign raised more than $400,000. It was insane. That was more than enough money to get John into a treatment program and help him fulfill his dream of buying a small house, living in Robbinsville, New Jersey, and getting a job working at a nearby Amazon warehouse because John said Amazon had good benefits. That's not a lot to ask for. A job and a roof over your head, maybe a used truck once John got his license back, and the support he needed to overcome his addiction. So many of us watched the local news and checked Philadelphia papers for updates about John Bobbitt Jr., wanting to see good things happen for him, hoping to see him in that little house he dreamed of and praying he'd be successful in his efforts to stop using drugs. As 2018 unfolded, there were plenty of updates about John Bobbitt, Katie McClure, and Mark D'Amico, but none of them were what we expected. The feel-good story born on the mean streets of Philadelphia had a mean streak of its own that grew more twisted and convoluted as the months wore on. This story seemed like it would be one of the best of Philly in 2018, and it wound up being one of the worst. My friend Kathy hinted at this tale in part one. Now we're going to roll up our sleeves and find out what the hell happened. I'm Dina Marie, your host on this twisted journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted, Twisted Philly. Philly. Talk about this story for the last few days. As you all remember, an act of kindness from a homeless veteran that is now getting national attention. Yeah, now his gesture to save a stranded woman could help him get a home of his own, and Adrian is here with the exclusive interview. What an interview it was. Yes, what an interview, and we tried to pack as much in into this uh, minute that you're about to see here. What started as a good deed turned into a big pay it forward. This is the first time that woman, Kate McClure, and Johnny Bobbitt Jr. share their story together about the moment they both would be in need on the side of the road. 
So you're not wearing the glasses because you're Hollywood now. No, man. I got an eye infection in my right eye. But it's Johnny Bobbitt Jr.'s face and story that's gone viral, with thousands giving to the Good Samaritan after an honorable deed two months ago. I was driving down 95 and ran out of gas, so I pulled over to the side of the road. He walked up and he said, get back in the car, uh, lock the doors, you know. I'll be back. Kate McClure says she could tell the man walking up to her off the highway was homeless. She got her gas to help her get back on her way. Wasn't expecting anything in return. Me and my boyfriend Mark went back the next day. He gave him $100. I was ecstatic. That gesture of helping stranded motorists is something Johnny has done countless times. How often would you go to see Johnny? A few times a week. Unknowingly, he was about to get hit with karma. What if we started a GoFundMe for this guy? We set it up in the car on the way home. You're going from zero, literally, to 300 and some odd thousand dollars. It's like winning the lottery. Less than a week ago, Johnny was sleeping under a bridge. Today, he's been given what he calls a second chance. I mean, of course, you know, I want to change my life. I want to give a lot of it away. Will you get a house? Yeah, I, I'm definitely going to get a place to live. There won't be no brand new car either. <laughs> no? No, oh ma'am. Used car? Absolutely. Maybe a truck? Absolutely a truck. <laughs> <laughs> and Johnny wants to say thank you to all the everyday people giving to him. In two weeks, they've received over $360,000 in donations. At one point, Johnny actually asked Kate and Mark, her boyfriend, to stop the fundraiser. They did that for 12 minutes saying other people needed the money, but they received backlash from people who said, no, I insist on donating wow. to Johnny. Now, we're also tell uh, they're also telling us that they've been speaking to a lawyer and a financial advisor about Which the wise smart. choices yeah. for this money and, and helping Johnny. I love that he says he wants to pay oh, it forward goodness. again with yeah. all of these donations. He says that there are causes outside of homelessness that he also wants to give to, but he's still processing this. He's very overwhelmed, I as imagine, you can imagine. And I yep. imagine that number is going to keep going up. Yep. We'll see. Thank you, In April 2018, Barbara Boyer of the Philadelphia Inquirer caught up with Bobbitt McClure and D'Amico to see what changes, if any, had occurred in John's life since receiving $400,000. Katie McClure and Mark D'Amico said they'd hired an attorney and a financial advisor for John. They put the GoFundMe donations in a trust, and because he'd admittedly used some of the money for drugs, they were giving John Bobbitt money as needed for living expenses. Why would they be controlling the finances if they'd hired an attorney and established a trust? Wouldn't the attorney have been responsible for that? Unless power of attorney was granted to someone other than John, he should have controlled the trust fund. There was nothing said about power of attorney being granted to Katie McClure or Mark D'Amico, yet it seemed they had full access to the GoFundMe donations. According to Barbara Boyer, Katie and Mark didn't share how the money was invested, if the money was invested, or whether Bobbitt had direct access to the funds raised in his name. He did have a place to live, but it wasn't that little house he dreamed of in Robbinsville, New Jersey. John Bobbitt moved into a trailer. From pictures I've seen, it certainly looked like a nice one, but it wasn't owned by Bobbitt. The trailer was owned by Katie McClure, as was the truck purchased for John. And it wasn't that dream truck he'd had his eyes on. His dream wasn't anything new or fancy. It was a 1999 Ford Ranger. In her interview with John Bobbitt, Katie McClure, and Mark D'Amico, Boyer reported John had a broken-down SUV that didn't run. She also said Katie and Mark were tight-lipped about the financial aspects of this story. They cited an exclusivity agreement they'd signed as part of a book deal. Whoa, that's big news. 
And not surprising, this story was all over the news, all over the country. You heard Katie and John's interview on Good Morning America just two weeks after they'd launched the GoFundMe campaign. That's national morning news. By the time the campaign ended, there were over 14,000 donors from all over the world. Of course there'd be a book deal, maybe a Lifetime movie, if not a major motion picture down the line. Considering all that, the $400,000 was probably just the start of the windfall waiting for John Bobbitt. By April 2018, John had been in rehab twice. At the time of his interview with Inquirer reporter Barbara Boyer, John said he didn't get involved with drugs overnight, and he expected it to be a struggle for the rest of his life. John had three weeks of sobriety under his belt in April. He was participating in an outpatient rehabilitation program and was looking forward to taking on more responsibility for himself, not only with regard to his sobriety, but his money. This is a topic that came up a number of times in discussions online with Twisted Philly listeners. Do you let someone who is addicted to drugs manage their own finances? There are probably thousands of people right now who sadly use drugs. They hide their addiction from friends and loved ones, and they manage their own money. Whether they manage it the way you would, or I would, or their neighbor would, isn't the issue. Shit, even people who don't use drugs don't always manage their money as effectively or as responsibly as they could. John Bobbitt was 35 years old when the GoFundMe donations were released. He was a legal adult, yet he didn't have control of his own finances. McClure and D'Amico, especially Mark D'Amico, repeatedly brought up the fact John used some of the money to buy drugs. John admitted this. About Bobbitt, Mark D'Amico was quoted as saying, He's a drug addict. That's like me handing him a loaded gun. He has to do what he has to do to get his life together. Clearly, Katie McClure and Mark D'Amico felt as if they knew best. Just four months later, the relationship between John Bobbitt, Katie McClure, and Mark D'Amico became a volley of he said, they said. McClure and D'Amico said since December 2017, they'd spent over $200,000 of the GoFundMe donations on Bobbitt. That included the camper parked on property owned by McClure's parents, the broken-down truck, living expenses, John's rehab. John Bobbitt said there was no way they spent that much money on him. He believed they'd been spending money on themselves and specifically mentioned a BMW the couple recently purchased. The couple said Bobbitt blew $25,000 on drugs and stole from them to feed his addiction. Bobbitt denied these claims. He hired an attorney who, with GoFundMe, opened an investigation into how the $402,000 was managed and by whom. So first they said there were trusts set up for John and an attorney hired to manage the money. Then Mark D'Amico said there was no trust, nor could he provide financial accounting of the money because it all went into existing accounts between him and Katie McClure. They didn't give John the opportunity to open a bank account. Then, he said, they had opened a bank account for Bobbitt. Their account of what was done with that money changed almost every day. In June 2018, John Bobbitt claimed he was asked to leave the trailer they'd purchased for him, and he was homeless again, living under an overpass in Philadelphia, begging for food and money. What could he do? The trailer was in Katie McClure's name, on property owned by her parents. He had no legal right to that residence. But did Katie McClure and Mark D'Amico have a legal right to control John's GoFundMe donations? No, they sure as shit did not. 
Bartlett Jackson, a spokesperson for GoFundMe, said they were looking into the claims of misuse regarding the campaign. He further said when there is a dispute, GoFundMe works with all parties involved to ensure funds go to the right place. And he said GoFundMe would work to ensure that Johnny receives the help he deserves and that donors' intentions were honored. Katie McClure and Mark D'Amico were interviewed by Megyn Kelly on the Today Show on August 27, 2018. She peppered them with questions about why they didn't set up a trust for John Bobbitt, why didn't they get him his own account, why did they have control over the money. Both Katie and Mark talked at length about the arduous task of getting John's identification papers. And I'm guessing they meant a driver's license, maybe a birth certificate, which aren't impossible to obtain. You can get a copy of your birth certificate online. It costs about 25 bucks. You need your parents' names, your mother's maiden name, the location of birth, and an address where the copy can be mailed. And that's about it. Once you have that, you can start the process of getting a state ID, which John would have needed instead of a driver's license because, as he told Inquirer reporter Barbara Boyer back in April, he couldn't drive that broken-down truck D'Amico and McClure bought him anyway because his license was suspended. No, you can't just walk into the DMV empty-handed and walk out with a license. But there is a ton of information online about what you need, what steps you have to follow, and how to get a state ID card. Once you have that, you can get your social security card replaced. Sure, it's a pain in the ass, but it isn't anywhere near as bad as they made it out to be. During their interview with Megyn Kelly, both Mark D'Amico and Katie McClure assured her audience and the viewing public they would willingly provide an accounting of all the funds, what was spent, when, by whom, on what, and what was left. That was a very different position. That was a very different position than the one Mark D'Amico took with John Bobbitt's attorney, Jacqueline Promislo. According to Promislo, D'Amico said he wouldn't meet with John's attorney unless John was present. He canceled a meeting that had been scheduled for the 27th. Maybe he canceled it so he and Katie could go on national television. And he refused to respond to a request for a financial accounting of the $400,000. Three days later, on August 30th, a Superior Court judge ordered D'Amico and McClure to transfer all remaining funds into an escrow account to be controlled by the legal team representing John Bobbitt. D'Amico estimated there was about $150,000 left although just a few days earlier, he'd said there was 200000 It took John's attorney filing a lawsuit against Katie McClure and Mark D'Amico to get the remaining money back from these two. Oh, wait. John Bobbitt didn't get any money back because there was none. There was no $200,000, no $150,000. Absolutely nothing was left. And then everything moved at the speed of light. The Burlington County Prosecutor's Office raided D'Amico and McClure's home. They towed away the BMW and carried out bags full of shit. I'm sorry, evidence. I would imagine it was easy to decide what should have been included in the search warrant because Katie McClure Instagrammed the shit out of the life of luxury she and her boyfriend began living after the GoFundMe donations were released. Thousands of dollars of purses. Coach bags. Even if you're not shopping at the outlet, how many coach bags do you have to buy to spend thousands of dollars? I read there was close to 15 grand spent on purses. What did she do? Buy 40 coach bags? You'd have to, because most coach bags are between 200 to $500. There are a few that go higher than that, but seriously, are you using a different purse every day? 
I like coach bags. And even if I had the money to buy 30 coach purses, I wouldn't. What's the fucking point? Then there were vacations, trips to Disney, California, Vegas, where D'Amico blew thousands of dollars gambling. According to Katie, he didn't just gamble away money in Vegas. He had a pretty heavy obsession with online gambling. Mark D'Amico even admitted to having a gambling addiction. And I think that's pretty shitty of him to be so high and mighty about John Bobbitt's addiction when Mark D'Amico had one of his own. Ernest Badaway, the attorney representing both Katie McClure and Mark D'Amico, alerted the prosecutor's office in late September that he and the firm where he worked would likely not be representing the pair going forward because they expected both Katie McClure and Mark D'Amico would be indicted for fraud. Up until this point, the lawsuit filed against McClure and D'Amico was a civil suit. That changed on September 7, 2018 when Scott Kofina, the district attorney for Burlington County, New Jersey, announced his office was launching a criminal investigation into McClure and D'Amico's actions. Part of the evidence removed from their house the day before were financial records, which indicated out of $400,000, only $68,000 was given to John Bobbitt. And that sum included the cost of the trailer and the broken-down SUV. About 30 grand came off the top of the 400,000 in GoFundMe fees. Take off 68,000 spent on Bobbitt. That meant Katie McClure and Mark D'Amico spent about $300,000 in eight months on bullshit. They didn't buy a house or donate a large sum to charity. They didn't buy stock or invest it. They just blew it. As if all of this wasn't bad enough. In November, we learned. This wasn't just two people who scammed someone else. John Bobbitt, Katie McClure, and Mark D'Amico were all in on it together. On Thursday, November 15th, the three were charged with theft by deception and conspiracy. There was no random encounter between Katie McClure and John Bobbitt at the end of an exit ramp off Route 95 in the Port Richmond section of Philadelphia. Instead, the trio met at Sugarhouse Casino in Fishtown. Katie and Mark claimed they did think of John often. They wanted to do something to help him and also help themselves. Katie posted the GoFundMe campaign on November 10th, 2017. According to text messages uncovered by the district attorney's office, about an hour after the GoFundMe went up, Katie McClure's best friend texted her asking why Katie didn't tell her she ran out of gas. Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you call me? Katie's response? Okay, so wait. The gas part is completely made up, but the guy isn't. I had to make something up to make people feel bad. No, bitch, you didn't. You could have posted a GoFundMe about John Bobbitt, a homeless veteran who'd served in the Marines, a former EMT, someone with a family and people who loved him, who found himself traveling from North Carolina to Montana, then to Philadelphia where he thought he could take a hit just once and not go back to being an addict. But that's not how it worked. And a year later, he'd been living on the streets every day. Or you could have contacted the Veterans Affairs Office in Philadelphia to find out what programs might have been available for John. You could have done anything other than scam 14,000 people out of $402,000. Katie's friend texted her back and said, this story is gonna backfire. Nah, it's all good. How would it? 
Katie McClure's mother must have known about the scam because a few days later, in another text exchange with her best friend, McClure said, my mom just called me and said that people go to jail for scamming others out of money. So there's that. That's what my mother thinks of me. Yeah, her mother must have known what was up. Katie's friend continued to warn her. There were multiple text messages where she repeatedly said, this is going to backfire. They're going to interview John. They're going to ask him about this. You need to tell him about the gas story. So it seems John may have been in on the GoFundMe from the beginning, but he didn't know about the tug on your heartstring story Katie McClure and Mark D'Amico made up. He didn't find out about it until November 15th, five days after the GoFundMe campaign launched. Then on March 9th, 2018, Katie McClure texted her boyfriend Mark D'Amico with a message that read, I can't believe we have less than 10K left. I'm so upset. Okay, so at first, I thought they blew $300,000 in eight months between January and August. Nope. They went through it in about three months. How? How do you go through $300,000 in three months? I cannot wrap my head around this. Mark D'Amico didn't seem to be concerned whatsoever because his response was, in a year, you'll be laughing about when you blew hundreds of thousands. These messages went on for months. According to the Burlington County Prosecutor's Office, there were over 60,000 text messages recorded into evidence related to the GoFundMe scam. On August 10th, 2018, John Bobbitt contacted Mark D'Amico via Facebook Messenger. He had been homeless for about two months at this point. John's message read, We really should talk about things. There has been a lot of people asking questions, and I really don't know what to say. We really should get out of here before things go public. I've really been trying to avoid people, but it's becoming more and more difficult. We will get on a bus anytime you can take us and watch us leave. I think it's the best idea because we don't want people asking questions. We're still in the same place. We're always on the lookout for you. The we in this message was John and his brother, who had also come to Philadelphia and was also living on the streets using drugs. D'Amico replied that he'd be down meaning he'd swing down by the overpass on Callow Hill where John and his brother were living. And he said he'd pick them up soon, but he never did. And then John went public with the story that Katie McClure and Mark D'Amico took all the money that was meant for him. A few days after the arrests, Katie McClure's attorney released an audio recording of a conversation between her and Mark D'Amico. In the recording, Katie sounds as if she's trying to get Mark to admit this entire scam was all his idea. Mark doesn't take the bait. He blasts Katie for the money she spent, and then the recording takes a horrible turn. I didn't include it here in this episode because it scared me. Listening to the way Mark D'Amico yelled at her, the tone of his voice, the words he used, and then the fear in Katie McClure's voice, it also sounded like he hit her. It was... It was just absolutely terrifying. I couldn't finish listening to it. It scared me that much. The recording was played on Good Morning America, who also interviewed Katie McClure's attorney, James Garrow. In that interview, Garrow told Good Morning America, Katie thought she was helping a homeless veteran. Mr. D'Amico was the one behind this, and he was calling all the shots. She didn't understand or appreciate the fact that this may very well be a crime. That's a bit much. The text messages alone reveal Katie didn't just think she was helping a homeless veteran. But after listening to even just a little bit of that audio recording, 
I believe she may have been compelled to do whatever Mark D'Amico wanted. Yes, she spent just as much money as he did. She is not innocent. But that audio recording sounded like domestic violence and emotional abuse. And it didn't sound like something that just started that day. John Bobbitt, Katie McClure, and Mark D'Amico are currently awaiting trial. All three were released after their arrests. John Bobbitt's release was conditional, provided he attended Narcotics Anonymous and participated in a drug rehabilitation program, provide proof of any efforts to find employment, and attend all future court appearances. But he didn't. John Bobbitt failed to appear in court in Mount Holly, New Jersey. As a result, he was arrested by Philadelphia police on January 9, 2019 in Fishtown, and then extradited to New Jersey. Bobbitt's role in all of this... I hold him the least responsible out of all three of them. He's homeless, addicted to drugs, not making good decisions, desperate to get off the street and out of Philadelphia. This city brought him nothing but misery. So when two people offer him the opportunity to get a few thousand dollars, which is what they expected, 10 grand split between the three of them, I'm not surprised he said yes. It was wrong, all of it. But I fault him much less than Katie McClure and Mark D'Amico. There will be more information about this story in the coming months. I made repeated attempts to speak with District Attorney Scott Kofina as far back as September. I left messages for him. I left messages with his administrative assistant. I even said I understand this is an open investigation, so there may not be much you can share with me, but I would still greatly appreciate a few minutes of your time. I never heard back. I sent the same messages via email, and those also went unanswered. I made attempts to speak with McClure and D'Amico's original attorney, Ernest Badaway. Left messages, sent emails, no response. Same with John Bobbitt's original attorneys. GoFundMe did right by the donors and refunded everyone's contribution. They are out a shitload of money, but it was the right thing to do. People sure as hell didn't donate to the McClure D'Amico Gambling Disney BMW Coach Fund. When everything broke about this story, first that it was D'Amico and McClure ripping off Bobbitt, then it was all three of them scamming everyone, I listened to so many people talk about why they don't give to GoFundMe campaigns. I still do. I don't want to be jaded by this. These three are not representative of everyone who wants to help someone. They aren't representative of every GoFundMe campaign. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters. Twisters.